You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. So, my name is Kevin, and I'm glad to be here. Uh, very excited to be able to be at Doxology and Theology again. Had some very uh, fond memories in this place at Southern uh, Seminary, and getting to talk about hymns. Um, I am a Presbyterian minister in the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. I work with college students in a ministry called RUF, Reformed University Fellowship at Belmont University in Nashville. I'm going into year 21 doing that. I was for eight years on staff with Scotty Smith, who maybe you heard or are going to hear. I think he's gonna preach this afternoon. He preached last night, okay. So uh, I served with Scotty for eight years as well. Um, and then in, in 1999, after a few years of singing retuned hymns that basically, I, I won't go into the whole background of that, but um, I, I basically was looking for songs that weren't lying to my students about the Christian life. And so I started looking around for other songs to sing other than a lot of what was being marketed as college worship. And I found a lot of help in some of these older hymnals. Um, ever since college, I'd found a lot of help from older Christian books when I didn't really have much direction. and. I just went to some used bookstores and some of the things I found in old bookstores were really helpful to me. And so I had um, this old hymnal by John Rippon and I kept finding these amazing hymns with the name Steel, like Dear Refuge in My Weary Soul and That Lovely Source of True Delight and all these hymns that I thought would be really helpful for my students in forming them with a much more realistic picture about Christianity, what it felt like. And yet hymnals before the middle of the Civil War uh, don't really have music in them. They're just the texts. And so a lot of these texts I was finding had dropped out of use and we just had to figure out ways to sing them. And sometimes, you know, you can sing most English hymns with, you know, a tune to Rock of Ages, Come Thou Fount, and Amazing Grace. You can sing like a lot of tunes, a lot of hymns. And we did that for a while sometimes. But then I would Xerox off the paper and be like, hey, if somebody wants to write a new tune to this so we can try it again next week. And uh, there's something great about college ministry that you can do that. It's harder to do that if you're the worship director at a church and you keep like kind of changing things on people. There's more backlash than when doing college ministry. Well, in um, 2002, we got a grant for this work and it was called Indelible Grace. This first CD came out in 2000. We've now made, I guess, eight or nine of them. And um, in 2002, we got a grant from Calvin to transcribe the music that was emerging, that was being written, and that was a thing called the REF Hymn Book. Now it's online as a thing called the Indelible Grace Hymn Book, and you can download all that stuff for free, the music and PowerPoint slides and all that kind of stuff. But then uh, we also got money to do a tour, so we got to go to like 19 cities, and I got to go share what we were doing, different churches and seminaries. And then the thing I was most excited about is we were able to have a conference, the only conference I've ever planned. I go and speak at conferences now. That works a lot better. Um, but we did have one in Delville Grace conference in 2002, and we brought a guy named Bruce Hindmarsh. Bruce is one of the world's experts on John Newton, and he came. He was a regent in Vancouver, um, and he came and gave us a few lectures on hymns that was amazing. And one of the things at the end, he kind of had some appreciations and also challenges for this kind of um, f beginning movement of retuning hymns. And one of the things he encouraged us was to look beyond just Great Awakening hymns. In other words, to look beyond just Watts and Wesley. You know, that stuff's great. You guys have found that and you've found some, even some of those that have dropped out of use that you've retuned and it's awesome, but there are so many other 
hymns, in particular the German Reformed tradition and early church and early you know church hymns. Now I will tell you what's interesting is for English speakers, German hymns really become accessible in the 19th century, for the most part. Uh, there's a lady named Catherine Winkworth who, um, I, I'm even start this out saying, thank the Lord for Catherine Winkworth. Catherine Winkworth was an English Victorian lady um, who actually kind of grew up in a Unitarian church, but became Anglican. And I, when I look at the hymns that she translated, she doesn't shy away from substitutionary atonement and other things. So I don't think she remained Unitarian. That'd be shocking to me, having read through all her hymn books. Um, but she started translating so many of these um, German hymns. John Wesley had done a little bit of it, and I'll talk about that. He was very influenced. But, um, you know, the, the 19th century was a good time for getting other hymns into English. Greek and Latin hymns, they weren't just continually sung through the history of the Middle Ages by congregations. Um, they really kind of get brought into English-speaking worship in the 19th century through the Oxford movement. They're the ones that translate Latin and Greek hymns, and then through Catherine Winkworth and a few other people that start translating all these German hymns. And I just have to tell you, um, having now dipped into this uh, field of German hymns, number one, I wish I spoke German. Uh, estimated there's over 100,000 German hymns that have been written, and um, not very many of them translated, but some amazing ones. And um, like Catherine Winkworth, some of these, like, Whatever My God Ordains is Right, if you know that one, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation, that Neander text, she translated that one. Um, now Thank We All Our God, you maybe know that one by Rinkhart. Um, some really, you know, very important German hymns we owe to her, and um, she's got these, these books. I was, I was telling people, like Lyra Germanica is, is her book, but it's a little complicated. Now you can find these on eBay. You can also go to Google Book Search and get this book as a PDF and download it for free. So that's great. When I started trying to find old hymns, they didn't have that. And if you didn't live in a city, uh, it's hard to find old hymnals, but eBay is really great. I just look up antiquarian and hymns and hymnal and I, I often I'll just do it every few days and see what's like about to end and sometimes you can get a deal. Uh, and then sometimes, and then often I'll look at what just got newly listed and you might find a buy it now that got priced too low. But it's like anything, the more you do it, the more you'll find them. And sometimes it's helpful to include worldwide listings because if you get English um, dealers then you can find other books. And you can find cool hymn books like this for under 50 bucks. You can. Now that may seem like a lot of money. That was a lot of money when I was a seminary student. But now if I find some, some choice hymns that I can uh, work with, it, 50 bucks is a deal. I'm glad to do it. So uh, Catherine Winkworth, I gave you this little outline or this extra paper, and that is all Winkworth. Um, she, uh, there she is in all her glory. There are over 100 of her translations at Cyber Hymnal. Now I know the Cyber Hymnal is annoying. If you've never been to the Cyber Hymnal, it's great that they have it, okay? But you have to turn off your speakers. Yes. Yeah, because you get, when, you, uh, when you click on a particular hymn, it'll automatically start playing the tune with this really horrible, like, warbly piano and warbly voices sound, MIDI sound. Um, so just turn off your speaker and then look around. But, you know, I, basically those are like 112 Winkworth translations. You don't have to buy these books. Like, and I, what I love to do is even just look at some of the, the titles. Ah, dearest Jesus. Ah, Lord our God, let them not be confounded. 
Alas, my God, my sins are great. All glory be to God on high. All men living are but mortal. All mine heart this night rejoices. That's actually one of her more famous ones, isn't it? Um, Arise, sons of the kingdom, number nine. Arise, the kingdom is at hand. People are like, there's not a lot of hymns about the kingdom. You know, now when you look at some of these, you might be like, okay, by kingdom, she means the church. That's not unusual, actually, in old hymns. That kingdom, church distinction isn't really maintained. Um, But still, there's some really great stuff. Um, And I highly recommend checking out Catherine Winkworth. And maybe that, you know, just those titles will intrigue you enough to click on them. If you would read those 112 hymns, you would know more about German hymnody than you're going to get from the seminar. Um, And you would get a feel for it, and you would see themes in it that are a little different than normal English hymns. Um, So thank the Lord for Catherine Winkworth. Thank the Lord for the Moravians and their influence on John Wesley. Um, John Wesley was very influenced by the Moravians. Famous story about John and Charles Wesley, even before they were converted, had decided to become missionaries to America, to Georgia, okay? And they're coming over on the ship, and there's a group of Moravians, about 20 or 30 Moravians, that are coming to plant a colony in Georgia. And one of the things that the Moravians do, they're German-speaking, okay? And I'll tell you about the Moravians, where they come from. They're like distant connection to John Huss. Um, but they are, um, every, every hour or every day, they come up at the appointed hour and sing hymns and do their worship in German on the deck of the ship. And within three days, uh, Wesley decides he needs to learn German so that he can start to converse with them. And eventually, they have a situation where there's a hurricane off the coast and you know the, the professional sailors are like freaking out, and here come the Moravians at their appointed hour and conduct their worship service and sing their hymns. And their calmness of spirit so moved Wesley that he felt like he had to kind of get into this. And he actually published his first hymn book while he was over here in Georgia. I think it was published actually in Charleston. But um, he wasn't even converted yet, but he's already so intrigued and drawn by these hymns. Later, John and Charles and the Holy Club, all their friends, they're back in England, and what they do is they basically are trying to figure out what is it the Moravians have that we don't have? What does it mean to be born again? And so they're doing things like they'll gather in somebody's room and they'll read out loud Luther's intro to his commentary on the Galatians, and one of them gets converted. And then another time they're reading the intro to Luther on the Romans commentary and they get converted. So the Moravians are a huge influence on the Wesleys, and John Wesley is a superb translator of German hymns. So those are kind of the two main streams, if you want to find German hymns, is through the Methodists um, and John Wesley, and then through Catherine Winkworth. She brings these into Anglicanism. And before I go into all the history, let me just tell you why I wanted to do this seminar. Part of it is just to share with you what Bruce Heimar shared with me, that there are a lot more great hymns out there, and they may not be in typical Reformed stream, Presbyterian, Baptist, you know, the kind of people that come to doxology and theology may not know so much about Lutheran hymns. And there's some great stuff in these German hymns that I want you to get a taste for and maybe hopefully get you to go look for. And also to give you a little context and even how do I start pursuing this and learning about these? Where do I find, you know, the hymn books that'll lead me into this sort of stuff? And so here's a couple things I jotted down just why I think the German hymns are particularly helpful. One, they're very rich in sacramental and liturgical theology. You know, um, Martin Luther and Calvin had a a disagreement about what was wrong with the medieval church. And it's a very important distinction. Luther thought the problem was that the mass led you to believe that you could earn your righteousness before God. So he was content with keeping as much of the medieval worship service as possible as long as he changed the words to put a gospel spin on it. 
I know that's a vast simplification, but that's in generally true, okay? Even his doctrine of the Lord's Supper, you're like, it kind of sounds Catholic still, but you just don't want to admit it. There's a, 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 him saying, you know, basically we're going to keep as much of this as we can, but we're going to put a gospel spin on it. Make sure people don't think that they're earning righteousness before God by going through the Mass uh, or the worship service. Calvin, on the other hand, thought that the biggest problem with the medieval church was idolatry that people had added things to worship that there was no biblical warrant or command for. So his approach was much more to say, unless we can find it in the scriptures, like we're not gonna do it, okay? So in the Lutheran tradition from the very beginning, they're connected to, you know, like weekly, you know, worship with communion. They're following liturgical calendar and still like the parts of the traditional liturgical church service, okay? Which is one of the reasons probably why somebody like Catherine Winkworth, when she puts together her hymnal as an Anglican, this Lyra Germanica hymnal is organized by the church year. It's not organized by topic. A lot of you know, hymnals that are from the Baptist particularly tradition are organized by topic because the reason you're going to sing hymns is to support the sermon. Okay? And so it's easier for preachers to find a hymn that goes along with the sermon if they're organized by topic. So English Baptists and Presbyterian hymnals tend to be in that. But the Lutheran and the Anglican ones are the church year. So they, they meld together pretty well. And for a lot of people these days, I'm finding a lot of younger reform people are interested in liturgy. Maybe you read Mike Cosper's book or, maybe, or others and you're like, the church year, that's interesting, I want to explore that. Are there hymns that can help me, even if we're trying to move our worship towards that, even in a, a sort of modified way, not a full on every, you know, every liturgical day. Um, these Lutheran hymns uh, actually have a lot of resources for us, right? And they're really rich in the doctrine of the Lord's Supper and the hymns that have to do with that. Um, they also are the richest hymns on suffering that I know, like with, without a doubt. I know, uh, you know, I guess people associate me with Anne Steele and Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, which is an amazing text. And I think she's really great at lament and one of the best. But I think probably as a whole class of hymns, uh, there's nothing like the German hymns, especially from the 30 year war period. Um, in the early 1600s, and I'm going to talk about that as we go through the history. Um, so I think in our day and age, a lot of people are turning to hymns or they're trying to find songs that help us express doubt and struggle and are real about those kinds of things, finding a dearth of those sorts of songs in our modern worship songs. And I would tell you, German hymns are a great place to look for some of the richest hymns on suffering that I know of as a class. I'd say that in some ways that's probably their chief thing that I value about them. Uh, I really think of a good hymnal as bringing together all these different streams of Christianity, all these different denominations, and that's one of the supreme contributions of German hymnody is songs about suffering. And a lot of people I know are interested in that. So if you don't know where to go besides Anne Steele, German hymnody is a good place to go. They also, it, I don't know if any of you are songwriters or you've ever tried to retune a hymn. German hymns have all kinds of odd meters. And if you've been trying to retune hymns and every hymn is like 8888 or 8686, right? Or, you know, they're all like, you get kind of stale sometimes with the same um, rhythm of most English hymns, okay? There are certain meters that just get used over and over and over again. There's such a variety of meters in German hymns. And so if you're a songwriter or you're trying to retune hymns, um, you can find kind of fresh inspiration, I think from German hymns because they have different 
different meters. And um, that can be a challenge, but also can be a real spur to some creativity, I think. Um, there's something about the excitement of the new discovery of the gospel at the time of the Reformation. If you've ever read Luther on Galatians, you feel it. It's not necessarily the best commentary on what does Galatians mean verse by verse, but if you want to get what is the heart of the message of Galatians and why does it matter, and you want to get it pounded into your you know, head, as Luther was fond of saying, like Luther's commentary on Galatians is amazing. And part of it is this discovery and the freshness and the excitement that's just palpable. And I would say that's true in a lot of these uh, German hymns, particularly the first hundred years of German hymns. And that might be really good for your heart. I know it's good for mine. Um, there's also a range of denominational streams. So Germans are not just Lutherans. Like I said, there's the German Reformed Church. Um, the Pietistic movement comes into the Lutheran Church and the German Reformed Church. Um, you even have German Baptist groups, um, some of which settle in America and they produce hymnals. You have the Moravians, um, you have the Hussites, and, and I already mentioned the Lutherans. So there's a lot of different, uh, a range of different denominations. It's not, you, know, you could just get a Lutheran hymnal and that would be cool. And if you don't have a Lutheran hymnal, but you have a bunch of like uh, hymnals, you should have a Lutheran hymnal. But you could go even farther than that, and there's even more riches in German hymnody than that. Um, strong teaching on justification by faith alone, especially in the Luther and Moravian hymns. One of the things that Luther had um, was a concern for right doctrine, but also warm piety, the gospel you know, moving you in the heart. And that kind of got lost a century after Luther in the scholastic period. The Moravians and the Pietists are the ones that want to get back to that. And so uh, there, there's really strong, not just justification by faith, but the way it warms the heart is real strong in these uh, German hymns. And you also have, um, there's only, there, there, there's a lot of the history of hymnody where the hymns are all written by the pastors. And one of the exceptions to that is 19th century Victorian hymns. A lot of laymen and laywomen are involved in writing hymns, uh, but also Germany. German hymns from the very beginning were not just written by pastors. And one of the things that means is that German hymns um, really go through the whole range of life. Um, when pastors write hymns, they tend to restrict them to the things pastors preach about and to the, what happens in the worship service. But laymen and laywomen tend to write hymns about ordinary struggles of ordinary day in, day out life. And um, there's a lot of that stuff in the German hymns as well. Um, all right. I told you something about books. Um, I'll just point out two other ones. This one, The Story of Christian Hymnody by E.E. E. Ryden. You can find this on eBay or on abbooks.com. And you'll be like, well, there's lots of books on hymnody. The cool thing about this one by Ryden, and I put it on the outline for you, he's a German reform guy. So he's gonna tell you stories and fill you in on the history of people you've never heard of and hopefully, and give you samples of their work, and then you might be like, man, I wanna know more about this Freelinghausen guy, or I wanna know more about Neander, and you know, I like Praise the Lord the Almighty, what else did he write, and what, how would I understand his life that might enrich my use of, of that hymn? Also, Catherine Winkworth wrote this book, Christian Singers of Germany, and I know this is, this, you're not gonna find this old copy, probably, um, but it's a PDF on the hymnary.org website. Do you know that website? If you're a church musician, you need to know that hymnary.org, they have a PDF of this book, Winkworth's Christian Singers of Germany. And that'll give you like more history. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's well written as a story as well. All right? Okay. Well, let's go back. Let's then dig. Oh, one other thing I'll tell you. A modern book, a reprinted book, Philip Schaff. Do you know Philip Schaff? 
church historian. He's also a German reform guy, taught at a seminary in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, or Lancaster, somewhere in that area. He, um, this book, Christ in Song, Hymns of Emmanuel from All Ages, is a reprint. You might even be able to buy it in the bookstore. Um, he's a church historian, right? He has 10-volume work on church history. He also has a three-volume work on the creeds of Christendom. Um, fabulous, monumental scholar. Because of that, there are so many cool hymns in here that you won't find in other places. A lot of medieval hymns, Latin, Greek hymns translated, and a lot of German hymns. So this is an easy like paperback that you can buy, Philip Schaff, uh, Christ in Song. You can get it on Amazon. So highly recommend that. Um, and then there's I, this cool little book, Hymns from the Land of Luther. This is just cool. This, is, this was another lady, but um, around the same time of Catherine Winkworth. Um, and there's, you know, again, you can get any hymnal I mention, you can search on Google and find a PDF that some library has scanned and will let you download for free. It's remarkable. So, ready to talk a little bit about the history? Let me take you through this. All right, a lot of people don't know this. The Council of Laodicea, AD 364, banned congregational singing. Now, church musicians and historians debate on how widely it was practiced, okay? Um, but it definitely seemed to have had an effect. So when you hear about medieval songs and what the church was singing through the Middle Ages, it wasn't congregational song. It was monks singing songs in the monastery. And you sing like, you know, Bernard of Clovo, How, Oh Sacred Head. Like, people weren't singing that song all through the Middle Ages and up till today. That's not true at all. So you like look at a hymnal and be like, oh, this is this awesome hymn from the 10th century. We haven't been singing it from the 10th century. It probably was retuned. I know that one actually was translated in the 19th century by a professor at Princeton. Um, and so that, a lot of that stuff now is in our hymn books, but it wasn't kind of going on. Really, for a thousand years, for the, for the most part, congregational singing didn't happen. It's part of what was going on in Europe with worship being more spectator thing. You weren't really participating in much of anything. Generally, the priest had his back to you and mumbled in Latin. And then the singing was done by trained choirs of priests, right? Um, John Huss and the Hussites, this is like proto-Reformation, um, early 1400s, late 1300s, uh, are the ones that really begin to push, push for a number of reforms, right? Um, they want to give bread and wine to the people in communion. That was pretty radical. Uh, they also want people to be able to sing, the congregation to sing. And they begin producing hymn books in the early, late 1400s, early 1400s. The earliest Hussite hymn book that we have is actually 1505, right? Which is 12 years before Martin Luther nails the 95 Theses on the church door. So the Hussites were singing and preaching in the vernacular, congregational singing, and really are the ones who begin the restoration of singing to congregations. You know, when Calvin went to Geneva, they hadn't been singing. He, he pleads with the church fathers that they should try singing because their prayers are so cold and lifeless. And the, church, the city fathers won't go along with it. He gets kicked out. And uh, part of his conditions for coming back when they plead with him to come back is we have to try singing. So it's easy to criticize some of these people, but they're like trying to recreate something that hasn't been going on for a long time. Luther, though, was a monk. 
So he did know some of these songs because they were done. And in Germany, they would do like this extended Alleluia kind of thing on some of the songs. And some of those melodies were quite complicated. And eventually, some of those melodies, people will add words to them to help them remember the melodies. And sort of like a little version of like sneaking in congregational singing keeps happening. Um, Paul Westermeyer, a great Lutheran church musician, scholar, you know, he says he just can't believe that congregational singing didn't happen because it must have just sort of kind of broke through because of the impulse. But that's not proof. And all the proof we have seems to say that congregations weren't, weren't singing, okay? At the Council of Constance, where they burned John Huss at the stake, 1415, they also say this. This is part of their, uh, the canons of the Council of Constance. If laymen are forbidden to preach and interpret the scripture, how much more are they forbidden to publicly sing in church? Okay? Imagine, you know, worship without the congregation being able to sing. Huss died singing a hymn, and the Hussites continue to teach hymns to their children. I'm going to show you a Hussite hymn. There's a 15th century Hussite hymnal. Um, but this is a hymn by John Huss. And um, it's interesting. Think about the restoration of the Lord's Supper and what a big deal that was to them. Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, turned away God's wrath forever. By his bitter grief and woe, he saved us from the evil foe. As his pledge of love undying, he, this precious food supplying, gives his body with the bread and with the wine, the blood he shed. Whoso to this board repaireth, you know, that, that's like a festal board that's like the table full of food. Whenever you see that, that board language in a hymn, um, and repaireth means to go to it. Okay, so it's a, it's a weird phrase, I know. Um, but whoso to this board repaireth, let me just say this. I often have my students like do a paper on, in hymnody on interpreting a hymn. And if you Google board, like board and like try to figure out what it means, you won't get it. What you probably need to do is look up in the King James. Whenever you come in an English hymn upon a weird phrase, you're not sure what it means, start with seeing if it's used in the King James Version because generally that will lead you better to what it's really about, uh, what it really means. Anyway, whoso to this board repaireth, that means come to the communion table, may take heed how he prepareth, for if he does not believe, then death for life he shall receive. It's like fencing the table in the hymn, right? Um, Praise the Father who from heaven unto us such food hath given, and to mend what we have done, gave into death his only son. Thou shalt hold with faith unshaken that this food is to be taken, by the sick who are distressed, by hearts that long for peace and rest. If thy heart this truth professes and thy mouth thy sin confesses, his dear guest thou here shalt be, and Christ himself shall banquet thee. I love that last line. You think about Christ banqueting you? You know, there's lots of images about that in the scripture. This, you know, the party and um, Christ celebrating the great tale of Mephibosheth, you know, who's basically a traitor the son of David's enemy, and he makes him sit and eat like a royal son at the king's table forever. It's beautiful pictures of the gospel in that. Um, so then Martin Luther. Now I'm going to say a little bit about Martin Luther tomorrow night, so I won't say much here. But I do love this uh, quote um, that I put up there. Um, the one I put on your outline is important too, though. To Luther belongs the extraordinary merit of having given to the German people in their own language in their own tongue, and in a form eclipsing and displacing all former versions, the Bible, the Catechism, and the hymn book. He gave those, all three of those things to the German people. 
so that, I love this, so that God might speak directly to them in his word and that they might directly speak to him in their songs. Like, so here's one of my pet peeves is when people think about the history of the church, they generally tend to think it's only about preachers and that preaching is the only thing that changed the world. And um, it's not true. So many of your preaching heroes and my preaching heroes spent considerable time and effort working on church music. Calvin and Luther worked on it their whole life kept tweaking it, kept working on it. Spurgeon put out a hymnal. J.C. Ryle put out a hymnal. Philip Schaff put out a hymnal. On and on and on. George Whitfield put out a hymnal. Did you know that? So most people don't even know that these things exist. I just read the new biography of J.C. Ryle that Banner Truth put out. They don't even mention his hymnal. And yet in the preface to his hymnal, um, he talks about how it's, it's so important that people sing hymns and not just read books. <laughs> and I'm like, you wrote a whole book about him and you didn't even mention this thing that he feels really strongly about. And that's generally the way we learn church history. Um, and I, I'm trying to push back on that. Um, so Martin Luther, you know, the importance of Martin Luther's hymns, a century after Martin Luther's death, a Carmelite, Carmelite monk, so that's a, a Catholic, lamented as he looked back at Luther, and he said that he, Luther damned more souls with his songs than with his writings. So from the perspective of the Catholics, who weren't real fond of what Luther brought, um, his songs did more damage than his writings. And I just don't think that's the way you've read the history in the history books. Uh, there is a fascinating book detailing this story uh, on Lutheran hymns and the success of the Reformation and how absolutely vital singing and singing the gospel into people's hearts was for the success, quote unquote, of the Reformation. Um, Christopher uh, Boyd Brown, Singing the Gospel, Lutheran Hymns, and the Success of the Reformation. If you want to explore that further, I recommend that to you. Luther began writing hymns when he got word of the first two Lutheran martyrs. There were two um, teen boys in Brussels that were burned at the stake. And as they were burned, they sang the Te Deum. And that's an ancient Christian hymn. And when word reached Luther, he wrote his first hymn. Now, it's more of a ballad. I mean, that was one of the ways that you told the news in those days is you'd write a ballad and go to, hope that it spread around. Um, so we don't sing it because it mentions the two boys by name. So it's not necessarily a song that we're going to sing regularly in church. But it is interesting. Um, you know, that's how he got started. But very early on, Luther knew that he needed to um, not just translate the Bible, but revise the liturgy and the songs. And um, so he issued a call for Christian poets. I love this. This is in the preface to the 1524 hymnal which contained eight hymns, but he put it out anyway, eight hymns. And here's what he writes in the preface. In order to make a start and to give an incentive to those who can do better, I have with the help of others compiled several hymns so that the holy gospel, which now by the grace of God has arisen anew, may be noised and spread abroad. And then he, he encouraged people to help. And by the end of that year, um, there was another edition that had 25 hymns. Uh, by Luther's uh, credited with 36 hymns total. Not that many, really. Um, but there was an explosion of hymns um, by the time of his death. By Luther's death, there are 60 hymn books, different hymn books that have been published, right? Um, and it's, it's pretty just remarkable, the influence. And I, and I love that he does it to kind of demonstrate how to do it. And then he says, there are people that can do it better. Come help. And I, you find so often that in whenever like major movements happen in church music, often it's like kind of a small group of people that 
really have a goal and a plan, and they kind of say, hey, here, we're going to try this, and let's get some help and gather some people, which is to say, you can do that where you live. Yeah, you really can, um, if, you, if you think it's important. Um, Lutheran hymn that he after Luther, huge treasury of uh, German Lutheran hymns, which I say most Protestants don't know much about these at all unless you were raised in Lutheran tradition. I was actually christened as a Lutheran, um, but I didn't really grow up in the Lutheran tradition at all. Um, I, again, I've mentioned Christian singers of Germany online, Catherine Winkworth, but let me just tell you about a couple, uh, a couple of these people that are important in particular. The hymn writers of 30, wars, 30 years war period, 1618 to 1650 is, um, do you understand the 30 years war period? Uh, a 30 year war, I was thinking like, that would be, I'm 52 now, so that would be if my country had been at war from the time I was 22, right? From the time I got out of college until now. Um, and, and this, you know, this is Wikipedia, but you can find these sorts of things anywhere. Over the course of the war, the population of the German states was reduced by 30%. You can read other estimates that are higher than that. In the territory of Brandenburg, the losses amounted to half, while in some areas an estimated two-thirds of the population died. Germany's male population reduced by almost half. The population of the Czech land declined by a third. The Swedish armies alone destroyed 2,000 castles, 18,000 villages, and 1,500 towns in Germany, one-third of all German towns. And as you might expect, some of the richest hymns about suffering and persevering in suffering come out of this period. I'll mention two in particular, jo uh, Johann Hermann and uh, Martin Rinkhart. So here's Hermann. Did anybody know this hymn? Sometimes people sing it like at communion uh, or sometimes Good Friday. This is a, uh, you know, some, some, did he do it too? Oh, yeah, 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 good for him. So, uh, and I mean that in all seriousness, like it's great because that means more people have heard it now. Ah, holy Jesus. And the tune, does he do the original tune? Yeah, the tune's beautiful. Some of these German hymn tunes are really um, powerful. In, they, they call them German chorales, by the way. They don't call them hymns. So if you've ever heard the term German chorales, um, that, that means hymn, okay? Ah, holy Jesus, how hast thou offended that we to judge thee have in hate pretended by foes derided, by thine own rejected, O most afflicted. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. T'was I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. That's not very happy. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's like, yeah, it'd be hard to get that played on Christian radio. I, I'm just telling you. <laughs> Lo, the good shepherd for the sheep is offered. The slave hath sinned and the son hath suffered. Isn't that great? Like, hymns work really well when they use economy of words and they juxtapose things in a paradoxical way because that's suggestive rather than exhaustive. And that's actually a pretty cool thing to do if you're a songwriter. It, you're like, whoa, you can like sit in that and think about that. You don't just read that and you're like, oh, okay, I get that, and then you move on. The slave hath sinned and the son hath suffered for our atonement. While we nothing heeded, God interceded. For me, kind Jesus, was thy incarnation, thy mortal sorrow and thy life's oblation, the death of anguish and thy bitter passion for my salvation. Therefore, kind Jesus, since I cannot pay thee, I do adore thee and will ever pray thee. Think on thy pity and thy love unswerving, not my deserving. And there's a lot more where that came from. I mean, I just picked out a couple. Right? 
Um, here's another one. Do you, do you know the story behind this? Sometimes people sing this at Thanksgiving. Yeah? Anybody ever? The, the story behind this hymn is remarkable. Um, Rinkhart, um, I think I put it, let me see here. Did I put, yeah. Classic hymns written by Pastor Rinkhart, suffered greatly through the Thirty Years' War in Germany. He was extreme uh, poverty. When the two pastors of his two neighboring towns died, he ended up having to do the work of three pastors, burying 4,000 people, 1637, 50 per day, wow. including his wife when the plague hit. See, what would happen is, you know, the, the Swedes or the Catholics, like in the Germans, they would all like, you know, the scorched earth policy. Then you had the plague. So you had the plague, you had famine, and you had the war all going on at the same time. Um, this was followed by a famine so severe that 30 to 40 people could be seen in the streets fighting the death of the corpse of a dead cat. And when right after this, the Swedes invaded, demanded a ridiculous amount of money and tribute. Story goes that he went to intercede with the Swedish commander on behalf of the town to reduce the tribute, and the commander refused. At this point, Rinkhart turned to the crowd that was with him. This is straight out of Wink Winkworth, Christian Singers of Germany. But at this point, Rinkhart turned to the crowd that was with him and said, Come, my children. We can find no hearing, no mercy with men. Let us take refuge with God. He then fell to his knees and prayed with such pathos that the commander reduced the tribute. He wrote this hymn in 1644, four years before the Peace of Westphalia that ended the war. So it's not like he wrote this because the war is over. He wrote this four years before the war ended. It's not just a Thanksgiving hymn. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices, who wondrous things has done, in whom this world rejoices, who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Oh, may this bounteous God through all our life be near us with ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us and keep us in his grace and guide us when perplexed and free us from all ills in this world and the next. All praise and thanks to God the Father now be given, the Son and Him who reigns with them in highest heaven, the one eternal God whom earth and heaven adore, for thus it was, is now, and shall be evermore. You actually could make that a great doxology, right? Because that's how the, the hymn, that by itself, even that verse. That's a pretty remarkable hymn to write in light of those circumstances. Um, and then we're going to talk about Paul Gearhart. Paul Gearhart is the prince of Lutheran hymn writers. Um, I, I, I put some stuff down on your paper, I know. Um, here's the thing you get with Gearhart. You get more than just the objective. The gospel is true and it's been rediscovered to the gospel is for me. Now you get some of that in Luther, but in Rinkhart you get even more of subjectiveness, uh, but in a good way. Maybe you know this one. This is one of the ones that really struck John Wesley. And so he translated this. It's a Lutheran hymn that the Moravians were still singing and thus John Wesley heard it and translated it. Give to the wind thy fears. Actually, Jars of Clay, um, I, I gave him this text and they put it to tune and it ended up being a number one hit on Christian rock radio. So Paul Gierhardt got to have a number one Christian song, which I think is kind of cool. Unfortunately, I don't think their tune, as much as I love those guys, I don't think their tune works so well for congregational singing. Uh, unfortunately, I wish it did. Um, so somebody else needs to come up with a tune so we can sing this one. Give to the winds thy fears, hope and be undismayed. God hears thy sighs and counts thy tears. God shall lift up thy head. Through waves and clouds and storms, he gently clears thy way. Wait thou his time, so shall this night soon end in joyous day. Still heavy is thy heart, still sinks thy spirit down. Cast off the world, let fear depart, bid every care be gone. What though thou rulest not, 
yet heaven and earth and hell proclaim God sitteth on the throne and ruleth all things well. There's more verses. I don't have time to read them all. Um, let me get to the next thing. So it's not just Lutherans. And the Lutherans keep writing hymns. And not only that, but you know, Lutheranism spread, is in Sweden and Norway. And so you've got hymns from those uh, countries as well that are Lutheran hymns. But the German pietists, so the pietist movement starts out in the Lutheran movement. It's kind of, let's get back to the warmth of Martin Luther, right? Guy named um, Spainer and then another guy named Franca. And they're dealing with dead orthodoxy. And so they're concerned to get life back into these churches. They also begin to influence not just Lutherans, and there's Lutheran pietist hymns, uh, which a lot of them go down through the Moravians, but there's also uh, an influence into the German Reformed Church. So they're more influenced by Calvin and um, not the Lutheran movement, but then they end up becoming uh, hymn singers when pietism comes over to them. And, and the main guy is Joachim Neander. Right, who wrote Praise the Lord, the Almighty. And his story is pretty interesting. Um, well, I, I think I, I jumped ahead, but there, you know, I, saw, I put down on here, there's actually a pietist movement among the Lutherans, and you can look up Frelinghausen. Um, there's some great hymns in that. But uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Neander and Praise the Lord, the Almighty. Um, Neander is a guy, he grew up um, not really a religious boy. In fact, uh, as a teen, he and some friends went to this uh, German Reformed Church to mock the pastor, sat up in the balcony. Get, he kind of felt convicted about that later. Um, he traces his conversion to when he was hiking in the mountains and it turned dark and he almost slipped off of a ledge and was paralyzed by fear and prayed that God would help him. Felt like God delivered him. He gets converted. Eventually he ends up um, you know, going to become a school teacher at a church you know, run school and he becomes influenced by these um, pietists wants to bring that kind of movement to the German Reformed Church. Because at this point, the Lutherans and the, and the German Reformed are arguing about really esoteric theological things. And he wants to bring them back to the life and the freshness of the gospel. And um, it doesn't go well. Uh, as he's teaching one day, a bunch of the elders from the church burst in and fire him and kick him out of his house. The students actually are all armed uh, and want to sort of intercede on his behalf, but he tells them not to. Um, he ends up departing and going and living in a cave in a valley, and that's where he writes most of his hymns. Later in the 19th century, that valley, which is called Neanderthal, uh, is where they have these salt mines, and it's where they discover the Neanderthal man. So that's, the, you know, the Neanderthal man is named after Neander, because that was Neander's valley, where he lived in this cave and wrote these hymns. And it's amazing to see all of the uh, nature imagery in this hymn, right? I think that's pretty remarkable. Um, let, let's look, you know this hymn, right? Um, how are we doing on time? Yeah, we still, we still got a few minutes, yeah, because I want to go through this one. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, again, Catherine Winkworth. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. There's even something, even about the meter, to where it just kind of rolls on, right? Um, praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Stop. No, it actually keeps you going. Even this meter has a way of multiplying the kinds of things. Certain meters do certain things well. Um, I'm not a poet, so, but I, I can appreciate it. Praise the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise him, for he is thy health and salvation. Like These are long lines because there's lots to praise God for. And, it, and it's built even into the structure of the text. All ye who hear, now to his temple draw near. See, it changes there. 
praise him in glad adoration. And it actually slows down, and, you, and that sort of drives that home. It's almost like the application of the, of the text. You see the way the, the verses do that? So then, praise the Lord who o'er all things so wondrously reigneth. Shelter these under, the under his wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. And you see the rhyme scheme, right? It's not A, B, A, B, like most English hymns. It's A, A, right? So that propels it as well. Um, Hast thou not seen how thy desires have been granted in what he ordaineth? And you'll find different tweaks of that. You know, and maybe you've heard it differently, different words. Uh, that's another thing hymnary.org is really good for. If you're like, wait, now, is which, which version of and can it be is right? Or is come thou found like this or that text? Because the Baptists have their tweak to it, and the Presbyterians have their tweak. You can go to hymnary.org, and you can look up a text and see every version that's been in every published hymnal. And you can kind of trace it out. Um, what is good about the cyber hymnal is they'll have all the verses that never appeared in other hymnals. So that's the one thing. Sometimes I'll, I'll, like I've got this from the cyber hymnal because they have all the extra verses that aren't published in other hymnals, right? It's published in Winkworth. You know, if you look this up in her book, you'll see all the verses. But generally, it's published with less verses. Hymnary will only have the way it's been published in a hymnal. But the cyber hymnal will have extra verses that might be missing. So you kind of need both of them. Um, but at Hymnary, I don't know if you know this, you can actually put in, you can make an account for free. You can put in all of the hymnals that you own. And then you can have one giant search index for your own hymnals. Particularly if you're like, hey, I like this tune. Is there a version of it in a different key? Or you can search all your hymnals and find, oh, I do have that. It's in this hymnal over here. It's a pretty cool thing. So I don't know if you knew that. Um, Praise to the Lord who hath fearless, fearfully, wondrously made thee. This is a verse that most people don't hear about. Health hath vouchsafed. It has to do with like making a, a promise, you know, the, a swearing a promise. Health hath vouchsafed, and when heedlessly falling, hath stayed thee. That one's a little tricky to sing. What need or grief ever hath failed of relief? Wings of his mercy did shade thee. You, you, do you think about how remarkable it is to translate a hymn? Like, generally, she's keeping the meter, right? She's keeping the meter, but translating, not word for word, that generally doesn't work when translating poetry, but idea for idea um, is, is pretty remarkable. Now, there's one hymn writer, uh, William Williams, who wrote Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. He, act he actually translated his own hymns. So he published versions of his hymns in Welsh and in English. But most everybody else, like you're reading, in some ways you're reading 19th century Victorian English lady version. So it's a little hard if you don't read German, like I don't, to really get sense. But you get the sense of the imagery, you know? And, and there's all oh, those rich imagery um, and even different things that they bring out that maybe other English hymns don't. All right, verse four. Praise the Lord who doth prosper thy work and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do, if with his love he befriend thee. I love those last two lines. Um, that's the kind of thing where you want to just like do an instrumental verse after that so that you can ponder anew and not just kind of rush by it uh, so quickly. Or you could actually like sing this one often enough that people can memorize it, even children in your church, and then that would be really cool. Um, Praise the Lord who when tempests their warfare are raging, who when the elements madly around thee are raging, biddeth them cease, Turneth their fury to peace, whirlwinds and waters assuaging. Praise to the Lord who in darkness of sin is abounding, who in the godless do triumph all virtue confounding. 
sheddeth his light, chaseth the horrors of night, saints with his mercy surrounding. Praise the Lord, O let all that is in me adore him, all that hath life and breath come now with praises before him. Let the amen sound from his people again, gladly for I we adore him. So if you want to see that, like, just look that up on Cyber Hymnal and you can get all those verses, yeah. So we've been debating that last line. Yeah, I, I was afraid somebody was going to ask me that. I was trying to move on. <laughs> um, For years. Yeah. Okay. It's not I, like me. Yeah, yeah. What does it mean? Does anybody know? What do you think? Yes, yes it means yes. It's like yeah. saying it again. Just like let the amen sound for his people again. It's echoing that same idea. Gladly for yay. Yeah, it, it's kind of that, but it's I sounds cooler. Um, gladly, yes, we adore him. I think it's an echo of the amen, is the way I read it. Okay. What, no, what was the debate? Well, we what does just, it mean? Yeah, we wanted the more like the Scottish I. I. Yeah. Or, Could be. Is that different well, like, in meaning? It's it's, that's kind of how they do it. It's almost like an affirmation yeah. kind of exclamation sort of thing. But it creates just enough tension to think about it longer. Yeah, right, right, right. And I, I'm a big fan of explaining things rather than changing things. Like I want people to know what an Ebenezer is rather than changing that line and come that out. And I want people to think about what does it mean that we uh, dare not trust the sweetest frame. Because I think a lot of modern worship is about trusting a sweet frame, which is like a sweet emotional state. Um, and I think that's spiritually treacherous. So um, I'd rather explain those kind of things and be challenged by hymn writers that see things or say things that may not be the way I would see things or say things. They may be wrong, but it's still helpful to even have some critical distance. Yeah? Yeah, just to add on, I think it's on song select that you gladly for all will adore him. Or no, gladly for all we adore him. Yeah, like we don't that's bad. For everybody. Yeah. And I think I, at first, I tried to just change it a little because, yeah. you know, my church is more not in the vernacular. Yeah. And then I finally was like, no, I'm just, I can't, this is the only thing yeah. I'm yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's hard. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who's tweaked some hymns, because and then some I really regret, um, especially that that one I asked the Lord that I might grow. There's this line, "Blasted my gourds," is and we changed. What do we say? Cast down my feelings. That isn't really what it was talking about. Um, it really was talking about like the Jonah story, and the plant, and then God takes away the plant. So I completely messed that up, and it's hard to get it back. Um, what? Record a new version? Yeah, I know. Maybe. Um, or, oh, love that woman to go. Do you know that one? Like, Matheson originally wrote, I trace the rainbow. Yeah. Or, no, no, he didn't write, I trace. He wrote, I climb the rainbow through the, and, um, and the, the hymnal committee changed it to trace. But I like climb. Like, you climb the covenant promise um, in the midst of suffering. You don't just trace it. Oh, I see, you know, you know shining, you know, silver thread in the clouds. That's, it's not that. It's climbing, you know. Anyway, so when you think about this, this text, a couple things. Um, it's very reflective of the Psalms in style, right? It's very Psalm-like. Even ending with, like, everybody join in the worship of God. That's a very Psalm-like thing to do. Um, and remember, he's German Reformed, so they were singing Psalms. You know, the Lutherans were singing Psalms too, but very early, you know, right from the beginning, we're singing Psalms, German songs, even Hussite hymns that were brought into the Lutheran tradition. But um, I, I think that's very psalm-like, sweeping, universal language, focus on God's attributes and character. That's a little different than the Lutheran hymns, honestly. Um, and I think what's really cool is all of the attributes of God are for 
us in this hymn. Uh, it reminds me of like the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a German Reformed you know, thing they use. Um, the Heidelberg is, uh, you know, what is your only comfort in life and death? All the questions in the Heidelberg Catechism, are, they're different than the Baptist Confessions and the, the Westminster Confession, the Presterians. Like the, the, the Westminster and the Baptist Confessions are more about make sure you understand the truth right. The Heidelberg is how does this truth benefit you and comfort you, right? And it, 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 this hymn, I think, reflects Heidelberg more than Westminster um, because it's the attributes of God are, are for us to, you know, to be encouraged and uh, benefit from. I think that's cool. I think it connects head and heart theology and you know, practical use, and I think that's pretty cool. Um, I also think you know, you, what you get, his pietist influence. He doesn't want the attributes of God just to be arguments for dry, dusty theology. You know, that, like they matter. And um, I think hymns actually are pretty helpful in keeping that balance in our own lives. Um, well, I, don't, I, I need to tell you about the Moravians, so let me, let me move on. The Moravians, okay, so the Moravians, um, the Hussites, you know, got persecuted. I mean, their leader, John Huss, got burned at the Council of Constance. Luther was pretty concerned when the Catholic Church promised him safe passage because they'd promised safe passage for Huss to show up at the Council of Constance, okay, to answer for his teachings. And then the church said, well, we don't have to keep our promises to heretics. And they burned him anyway. So Luther, you know, most people would say, fully expected that to happen to him when he was called to answer for his writings at the Diet of Worms. Um, but those Hussites were living kind of in the mountains in Bavaria. And I, I think, you know, the fact that those songs were part of how they passed on the faith, like it still stuck with them. Now, they're basically like kind of on the move as a community trying to find their way. And eventually they settle on the, state, uh, on the estate of this guy, Count Zinzendorf. Not a great name, Zinzendorf. And they kind of set up there and uh, he gives them basically the freedom to like kind of live there on the land. And they have this religious revival that breaks out. Right, and they start their 100-year prayer meeting, right, where somebody's praying in their community for 100 years, nonstop, 24 hours. A lot of the modern mission, missionary movement comes from that. The Moravians were remarkable. I mean, they would do things like you know, sell themselves into slavery so that they could minister to slaves in the Bahamas and other places in Jamaica and those kind of places. Um, and they, like I said, they had tremendous influence on the Wesleys. Um, I love the story about Charles Wesley's conversion because he was sick and it looked like he might die, and this guy Peter Bowler, who's a Moravian, um, German Moravian, who's in London, um, comes to visit him, or maybe it was Oxford, but anyway, this guy comes to visit him and asks Wesley uh, if he hopes to be saved. And Charles Wesley says, well, of course. And Peter Bowler says, well, upon what basis? And he says, well, my good endeavors. And Bowler just shook his head sadly and left. And Charles Wesley writes in his journal, what? Would he rob me of my good endeavors? What else do I have? And it was soon after that that, you know, reading Luther, I forget, John, I think, was Romans, and Charles was Galatians, or vice versa. I always mix it up. But they're reading this thing about the alien righteousness of Christ, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Uh, that's where John Wesley says his heart was strangely warmed as he heard about that at Aldersgate. And the same thing happened to Charles. And um, he begins writing him the first day. First day. Now, his father was a hymn writer. So it wasn't like a completely alien thing. But, um, you know, Charles wrote over 6,000 hymns. 9,000 if you include the unpublished and hymn fragments. Uh, I once calculated from the moment he was converted to the moment he died, that's an average of a hymn a day. 
And he writes in over 20 meters. Most English hymn writers write in just a handful of meters. He writes in over 20. Um, so he's just a freak in every kind of way. Um, but if it weren't for the Moravians, you know, I don't, I don't know where you'd be. And um, yeah. Well, if it wasn't for the Moravians, you wouldn't have had the, you know, the Great Awakening. And a lot of people say that you would have had the French Revolution repeated in England. Um, so who knows how much hymns can change the course of human history, right? Um, so now here's the interesting. I'm just going to read you this thing. I put it on your outline from Catherine Winkworth. When you're looking at these Moravian hymns, okay, there's some great things about them, um, but there's also some weird stuff, particularly like almost a fascination, almost like all the people that read these hymns in German will say there's like this weird, almost erotic fascination with plunging into the wounded side of Jesus and like fi finding a bed there to rest there. It's very strange. And most of them don't get translated because people are like, yeah, this, this stuff is just kind of weird. But you do, you do find that, right? Even in Rock of Ages, right? You, can, you can't deny the influence of that kind of theology that was swirling around with the Wesleys and then Top Ladies, you know, a contemporary of those guys and is, you know, friends with some of them. Um, do you know the story behind that, that hymn? It's this, this great story. John Wesley wrote an article and published it in this magazine that both Calvinists and Arminians would um, contribute to um, on how God rejoices in the death of babies in hell. And he signed it Augustus Top Lady. And then Top Lady returned the favor by writing an a equally strange article calculating how many sins a believer commits in his life. Because Wesley had this idea of entire sanctification um, or Christian perfectionism where you could have like a second baptism experience where you wouldn't consciously sin anymore. And um, Top Lady didn't think that that was true. And so he calculated down to like you know, six figures, exactly how many sins that you would commit. And then he appended Rock of Ages, and he named it a living and a dying prayer for the holiest believer on earth. It's a kind of a mouthful, but I like to remember that whenever we sing Rock of Ages, a living and a dying prayer for the holiest believer on earth. It's the prayer you need to live, it's the prayer you need to die. But you do see that kind of plunge into the side of Jesus thing in that one a little bit. So here's what Winkworth says, on hymnology, the Moravians have had a profound, powerful influence. Zinzendorf himself, all the members of his family, and most of the early leaders of the Brethren wrote hymns. Eventually they call themselves the Brethren. And you can get, this is actually a pretty cool book, The Hymnal and Liturgies of the Moravian Church. And I don't know if you know Indelible Grace Music, but there's one, um, the Great Litany uh, in here um, is where I got that, hear our prayer, hear our cry. Um, that was, I got that from this. And I use that prayer a lot, actually in worship. There's some cool stuff here. It's connect, It's similar to the Anglican and Lutheran. kind. Of, it's its own thing. And um, so I highly recommend this Lutheran uh, or Moravian liturgy. This one's a 1923 hymnal and liturgies of the Moravian church. You could, if you find it on eBay, it'd probably be 10 bucks. <coughs> um, anyway, so all these people wrote hymns. Singing was a prominent part of their worship, and they early began publishing hymn books. These contained some of the old classical hymns, much abridged and altered to meet the taste of the new church and a large proportion of what are called brethren hymns. So sometimes they get eventually called the Moravian brethren. There's different terms, but there's other people that know by the name brethren. That's why you need that Lewis Benson book to figure out which hymnal is which. Um, but the characteristics of these brethren hymns are a fervent affection and gratitude to the Savior, a spirit of happy childlike confidence, and a strong sentiment of Christian fellowship. 
but in many cases their poetic merit is not so great, and they sometimes degenerate into a mere dwelling on physical sufferings and a childish and extravagant style of expression. This was especially the case with many of the older, the original Moravian hymns, which were afterwards rejected from their later collection. Some, by Zinzendorf himself, were among the worst offenders. His hymns, of which he wrote more than 2,000, are of exceedingly different value. Some are fantastic, she means that in a bad way, and irreverent. Many, some were mere rhymed prose. Others, again, have a real sweet, sweetness, fervor, and song in them. Many of these hymns speak of the blood and wounds of Jesus or making a bed in his wounded sigh in a way of which it really is impossible to give instances. And I hate that because you read that everywhere. Ryden says the same thing. Oh, they're just crazy. And man, you should see them. And then they don't translate any of them. Um, but I do have this one from Count Zinzendorf, translated by John Wesley. And you might know this one. This one works with the tune of Just As I Am. So we've done that sometimes with this. Um, Jesu, or sometimes people sing it, Jesus. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Do you know this one? No? Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolve through these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. The holy, meek, unspotted lamb, who from the Father's bosom came, who died for me, even me to atone, now for my Lord and God I own. Lord, I believe thy precious blood, which at the mercy seat of God forever doth for sinners plead, for me, even for my soul, was shed. Lord, I believe were sinners more than sands upon the ocean shore, thou hast for all a ransom paid, for all a full atonement made. When from the dust of, de dust of death I rise to claim my mansion in the skies, even then this shall be all my plea. Jesus hath lived, hath died for me. Thus Abraham, the friend of God, thus all heaven's armies bought with blood, Savior of sinners, thee proclaim, sinners of whom the chief I am. Jesu, be endless praise to thee, whose boundless mercy hath for me, for me and all thy hands have made an everlasting ransom paid. Goes on, doesn't it? Ah, give to all thy servants, Lord. This is why, like, you know, um, what is the one? Uh, oh, for a thousand. Isn't it like 23, 24 verses? And the ones we sing like start at like verse 10. Um, so, you know, the Wesley's learned like lots of verses from these Moravian hymns. Ah, give to all thy servants, Lord, with power to speak thy gracious word, that all who to thy wounds will flee may find eternal life in thee. Thou God of power, thou God of love, let the whole world thy mercy prove. Now let thy word over all prevail. Now take the spoils of death and hell. Oh, let the dead now hear thy voice. Now bid thy banished ones rejoice. Their beauty this, their glorious dress. Jesu, thy blood and righteousness. That's it. Um, thoughts, questions? Hopefully I introduced you to some new things. Um, this is another thing you can find, the Reformed Church Hymnal. This is German Reformed. Um, yeah? So, um, so obviously a lot of these things are still in German. How prominent yeah. are some of these things still in German? Like, like with the, with the yeah. With, with the rise of the right church and then the fall of the right church? Yeah, sure. I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I know, I've, I don't know if, I've been to Germany and been with Germans singing in Feisterberg, and it's pretty, that's a pretty awesome thing. Um, 
So like anywhere, there's you know, evangelicals you know, um, that still hold on to these things. There's Lutheran churches. There's even German Reformed churches. Some of them are more liberal. Some of them are they're still conservative, kind of hold out. A lot of, you know, like especially the German Reformed, like, you know, the, the German immigrants kind of settled in certain areas and kind of kept their culture, kind of like the Dutch did up in Michigan. And so you'll still find, you know, a lot of German kind of churches. I don't know if you'll still find people that sing in German, but I've got hymnals, you know, early 20th century hymnals that are parallel German and English, you know, because I think come even singing in English, you know, was a challenge and, a, and led to some church splits, you know, up to, you know, early 20th century at least. Um, I think some of these things are still, but obviously 100,000 German hymns aren't still being used and sung. And there are some of these collections, like one of them has, the, one of the, the uh, German pietist, German reformed pietist hymn books had like 1,500 hymns in it. Like that's remarkable. And what Winkworth did in the 19th century is she kind of dug into these hymnals from the 1700s, a lot of them, and then started kind of finding what she thought were the best ones. So she's done a lot of the work. You can start with her, unless you know German, and then it would be awesome, but then you've got to be a poet in two languages. And that seems to me like quite a challenge. Um, but, you know, there's other people that did it. This little hymn from the land of Luther, you know, there's that one. Um, if you get Catherine Winkworth's book, um, she talks early on in this about uh, hymn books, other ones. And I looked every one of them up when I was reading through it on Google, and every one of them you can download. So there's still a lot of other things. There's also this book. Sorry, just tripped on my cord. Um, Luther's works, you know, they have the, this is volume 53 of Luther's works. This is liturgy and hymns. So, you know, you may not want all like 60-some volumes of Luther's works, but you might find this one interesting. And um, it, even on Wikipedia, you can find the original tune for um, A Mighty Fortress, which rhythmically is a lot different than the way you're used to singing it. Um, in the 19th century, there was this movement to um, take a lot of older church tunes and make them each note have the same value. And so thinking that was more scientific and then better. And um, it took away the syncopation from things like the doxology and um, like you would never mistake the original Mighty Fortress for a drinking song. It, it wasn't. Do you know that, right? When you hear that Luther, you know, set his text to um, drinking songs, that's a, a misunderstanding because the word bar with regard to German hymnody is a musical term, reference to AAB form, has nothing to do with the bar going to to the bar to drink. Now, Luther sang a lot of these songs sitting around drinking, right? I mean, he literally moved into like an, a, the, the Black Abbey where he lived, you know, was like a, a brewery too. And his wife, Katie, had her master brewer's license. And so, you know, Luther gathered people around him singing these songs. He would, they would, he'd take out his lute and they would sing. And there was a lot of beer flowing, I'm sure. And then people wrote down every crazy thing he said, you know, <laughs> while he was drinking, you know. But, uh, but anyway, there, 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 I, there's a lot of that stuff. Um, even like A Mighty Fortress, there's 80 English translations that, that I know of. There, I'm sure there's probably more. And even the one, A Bulwark Never Failing, like that's actually not a very good rendering of the, of the German. Um, because a bulwark is like an earthen fortress. And the German word is a fortress that goes with you. It would be like a tank or an armored personnel carrier, because that's more the image that God goes with us. It's like he says, um, 
to David, remember when he wants to build a house for God, and God says, no, I don't need you to build me a house. As long as my people are on the move, I'm going to be on the move. I'm the vagabond God who goes along with my people. And that's kind of the image that Luther's getting at, not this fortress that we hide in. He's the fortress, our God is the fortress who goes with us, right? So that English translation, which is the one we sing in America, they sing a different English translation generally in England that is, is better for rendering that phrase, but you know, it's hard to replace. What phrase do they use? I can't remember. I, on my little notes about Luther, I have it somewhere, but I don't know if I can find it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, the second thing is, you had mentioned there seemed to be a somewhat subjective turn in later Lutheran. Yeah, with Gearhart. With Gearhart. Yeah, Gearhart is where that, that takes a, a, a turn. And also Nature Hymns, he, he has more of those. But yeah, it's definitely a more subjective, you know, a mighty fortress is our God. Is more, it's a little more like standing and admiring the gospel. But you also have, you know, from the depths of woe, you know, I raised to thee a song of lamentation. That's a little more personal. It's also a, a psalm. So with Luther, he does some versions of psalms. He does some versions of older medieval hymns that were sung in the monastery. And he does versions of, or he does some hymns that are just from scratch, like A Mighty Fortress. Um, so he's kind of got all of them. But like one like A Mighty Fortress that he just writes out from scratch that's not based on a psalm is a more objective like, this is the gospel, and we need to proclaim it and beat it into people's heads and noise it abroad. With Gearheart, you get more of this kind of tender, how this affects me, personal. Which some people then would say, well, it seems less corporate. And that's always the challenge. I, I, think, I think that gets overblown sometimes, because there's lots of psalms that use I language, but it's in a corporate setting. I, I think there's a way to use I that's even in a corporate voice. Um, just because you use the singular doesn't mean it's not corporate. From what you know, does there seem to be something particular to Gearhart as an individual that oh. lends itself to this? Or is there something contextual that, that drives him? Oh, that it, isn't, isn't that always true? I, I, I'm, I don't know. The, I, think, I didn't mention this, but I put it in the notes, I think, that the official portrait of him that hangs in this castle over in Germany, the, the motto underneath is a divine sifted in Satan's sieve. Um, he lived at a time when like the, the ruler of that area kept changing between Protestant or Lutheran and Reformed. And so he'd get kicked out of being a pastor and back. It, it, was, it was really hard. So yes, he suffered greatly. I wouldn't want to just, how do, you, how do you explain that? You know, that sort of, where does that come from? I, I wouldn't want to just, there is connections, I think, to his life. Um, but it also seems to be, you know, was it influences on his life? Who knows? And there's a lot more. Like if you, re if you just download the PDF of Winkworth's Christian Singers in Germany, like there's tons of other people that I couldn't mention. Or if you get that Ryden book, it'll definitely open up a whole world of people to you that you've never heard of. So I, I, I find it really some great stuff in there. Yeah, other thoughts, questions? Yeah, hey. Yes. Oh, no, it's not on that record. Um, oh, which record is it? I think it's the um, Wake Thy Slumbering Children, which is still my favorite record that we did. Um, the Hear Our Cry, Hear Our Prayer. Um, when We Come, O Lord, to Thee. Um, yeah, th there's this cool, like, it's a version of the Great Litany, so it's not just in the Moravian version. It just happens to be where I found it. But it's this really cool... 
thing where it basically kind of goes through, you know, even by the fact that you were, um, you know, circumcised on the eighth day, that you lived in poverty. You know, it kind of goes through the life of Jesus and kind of pretty minute focus on all the various aspects of the suffering when we just tend to talk about, oh, he died on a cross. Yeah, but he also lived in poverty. And there's a benefit that we can kind of suck the marrow out of that, as the Puritans would say. There's gospel-like goodness in that, that he had nowhere to lay his head, and that that encourages us when we think, like, and so in their liturgy, they kind of go through that litany. Litany means a list. They go through a list of all these things, and there's encouragement to be drawn from every one of those things. Now, in some high church Anglican settings, they do that, the great litany, as, as part of their worship. I hadn't done it. I grew up Anglican, but I didn't, I don't think we did that, or at least I didn't remember it. And then I found it in that Moravian hymnal. But the Moravian hymnal is, is like good liturgy with justification by faith alone, like infused into it in a really supercharged way. So that's kind of why I think it's, it's worth having. And I've definitely taken some of the prayers um, from that and used some of them and found it really helpful. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. How do you think that um, hymn praxis changed after they would start publishing hymnals with uh, actual melodies attached to the? Yes. How does that? How it affects that things a lot. Yeah. yeah, it affects things a lot. So the question is about you know what changes when melodies get actually written out in the hymnals. Yeah. Well, um, you know it's it really starts with hymns ancient and modern. Because what you have is, like the Anglicans, even though you have people like John Newton, um, Augustus Toplady, the Wesleys, they're all Anglican clergymen, but none of them are doing those songs in Anglican churches. The Anglicans are still chanting psalms. Um, and it's really you know, more in the 1800s that some of these clergymen in their own local context start doing hymns. Um, like the guy that wrote Abide With Me and some of these people. And, it, and what happens in the Anglican you know, world in England at that point is some of the main movers and shakers decide to get together and make one kind of common hymn book called Hymns Ancient and Modern, and then they get this guy Monk, who's a you know, church music genius, to edit the music for it. And so rather than having all these competing books, you end up with this kind of production. And it also is shaped around the church calendar, so it has huge influence, because up until that point, you know, English-speaking hymnals are based more, they're resources for pastors to find a song to go along with their sermon. And that, so it shifts things a lot. It also then, I mean, probably I've heard Keith Getty say this, and I think he's right. I mean, there are some not so great texts that have great tunes that you remember. There's, there's really probably no um, great texts with bad tunes that you remember. So you do end up having like, the whole issue of copyright and them having to get permission now to use certain tunes and be able to connect them you know, to certain texts. Some of those, you know, there's different tunes, but some of them get married together, and some of those are good marriages, and some of them are not, and that probably affects some hymns dropping out of use that might have otherwise stayed around, and probably some hymns being retained that maybe should have dropped out of use. So I think it has some role there. It also, I think, even though you have a metrical index in the back of the hymnal, which is designed to let you mix and match tunes, it doesn't happen as much, particularly when you get to the 20th century. It just sort of see, people seem to lock into this. Like people ask me all the time, oh, what was the original tune for that hymn? And they don't understand, like, that's kind of a, 
a question that exposes you don't know the, that much about church music, because like, these hymnals weren't written necessarily with tunes. Some of them were, but a lot of them, they were just written more even as devotional poetry. Like people would read hymn books for, as devotional works. That's why you could have 27 verses, and you're like, did they ever sing this? No, probably not. Um, hymn book editors would sometimes pull different verses out and make hymns out of them. Um, so I, myself, I think that that, you know, it, it sort of caused people to quit thinking that, that texts and tunes could have their own life. And I think every text has more richness and meaning than any one tune can really bring out. And I think that sometimes it's really valuable to sing a familiar text with a new tune to bring out different nuances. For instance, Rock of Ages, the traditional Rock of Ages, like that's the Rock of Ages, right? Um, but cleft for me, I think James Ward's tune brings that out, the tenderness, Rock of, you know, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Like that's a little more of the tender, and I think both those images are there, that's part of the beauty of that text is the juxtaposition. And if you only ever did one tune or the other, I think you'd miss part of that. So I, I do think that, you know, it's a shame that people feel like that's against the rules um, and it also made hymn books more expensive. And so, like, in the 19th century, you would have your own hymn book, you'd use it at church, you'd take it home. And I think that had a great impact on family worship. But then when the hymn books get more expensive, you also, to include the music, all of a sudden you have a lot less hymns, right? Just as a publishing thing. And so what you end up finding, by, like, if you get these German hymn books, like, a lot of them, especially by the 20th century, I'd say, you know, 90% of the hymns are pretty similar to other Protestant hymnals. And today, like the difference between a Lutheran, Anglican, Presbyterian, Methodist, mainline hymnal is not very much. Most of those hymnals don't retain much of their denominational distinctive hymnody. You have to get back to these older hymnals to find some of the hymns that are more distinctive to these different streams.